During the past few weeks and even in our songs today, we've been celebrating the first coming of Christ. We turn today in Acts chapter 1 to consider the last event in his brief visit to earth. Acts chapter 1, if you'll note with me, beginning at verse 1, we, t- we find here an account of the ascension of Jesus Christ. The gospel writer, Luke, writes here in Acts, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So he writes again to Theophilus, uh, Luke, the physician and the writer of the gospel, writing to this same man and describing to him what takes place after Christ's ascension. Verse 3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. We know, of course, in one place, showing himself to 500, in other places to various individuals along the way, evidencing that he had, in fact, risen from the dead. On one occasion, verse 4, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift from my Father that my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I'd like to return to that verse later today, but let's let it filter down into our thoughts. John baptized with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wait until then. We'll return also then to verse 8. But let me read verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Jesus obviously in his first coming did not establish the kingdom as it was intended with Israel in his first coming. He does not say to them that's a foolish notion or the kingdom is done and established and there's nothing more to it. He says you don't know the time. And the time is really not an issue here for you. I have other things for you to do in the meantime while you wait. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. What's he talking about? Back to verse 6. Go into Jerusalem and wait until the Holy Spirit comes. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit. And verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When the kingdom comes, when I return, the date is not an issue for you. Now it is time to go into Jerusalem and to wait until this power comes from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses throughout the world. After he said this, verse 9, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. A cloud. This is probably, I, I, I think, certainly not a cloud in the atmosphere as such. I don't think it was a fog as such either. But probably something similar to the cloud that was in, uh, described in the book of Exodus, the numbers that led the children of Israel 
a visible cloud, a unique cloud, some type of pillar of cloud that could come right down to the ground if it needed to, but it was a cloud that hovered in the sky and that uh, Jesus then entered up into that cloud. Probably very much the same. I don't understand. We don't know what that cloud was made of or, or what it looked like exactly, but this cloud that shrouded the glory of God was there and hovered above Christ and he entered into that cloud and was gone from their sight. Now verse 10 says what you would expect it to say if a report was given. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. They have their eyes fixed in this place, looking into the sky, gazing there, wondering what is going on when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. These two men are obviously angels. Two angels had announced Christ's resurrection to his bewildered disciples. Two angels now explain his ascension to the bewildered disciples. This Greek word, looking intently, was a, a word that was used in the medical field of, of having one's eyes fixed, fixated on something. They were staring into the sky. They couldn't take their eyes off of it. Jesus had ascended before them. What would you do? They're staring intently into the skies. These two men come and begin to minister to them and direct their attention away from the sky and to the duty that would lie before them. Verse 11, they say this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now that question strikes us as, uh, well, what, why, what do you think we're doing looking in the sky? Obvious, we're looking, we're very intrigued by what we've seen here, but the angel's question to them is very perceptive and very instructive. It's saying, you're looking into the sky no differently than you'll ever look into the sky. You're not going to see anything more. Christ, the, the, the demonstration of Christ's resurrection is past. His post-resurrection, pre-ascension visitations are over. You're just looking into the sky. Now there's a job to do. Why are you gazing into the sky? He will come back. But now it's time for you to go on and to do the job that he's given you to do. The phrase there in verse 11, let me look at a couple of phrases here. First of all, we just briefly trace this uh, passage. But verse 9, he was taken up before you. Notice that phrase, he was taken up. We have there a passive sense. He was taken up. Then verse 11 we have the same uh, word, men of Galilee, why, are you, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you. Now the Greek has actually two different words that are used there, but they're both in the passive sense. He's been taken from you. There's a passive sense. In other words, God the Father has actively received the Son to Himself. Now in this same way, they say, in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven, he will come back. In the same way, it could be translated just as or in the manner in which you have seen him go. Liberal theologian Adolf Harnack claims in his commentary on Acts, and I quote, he says, the account of the ascension is quite useless to the historian. What Harnack meant by that, what liberal theologians mean, is that the idea of the ascension, the resurrection, the miracles, the virgin birth of Christ, these are all ideas. These are all concepts on which we hang our faith. But there's no historical fact to them. This is just useless to the historian, he says. 
In other words, Harnock could not believe that it happened, that a man would ascend into heaven was beyond his imagination. It was just a story with no usefulness to anyone who cared about history. Well, I think Harnock was very wrong. And if he is right about this, then the Bible is right about nothing. Because our salvation, the Scriptures teach, rests upon the historical reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the texts that declare His death and His resurrection for the salvation from sin are the very texts that declare that He ascended into heaven. We cannot pick and choose what we think is okay. And the only thing that a liberal theologian really in the end agrees with is that Jesus died. It's not too much of a stretch to imagine that a man died. But that he rose again, that he was born of a virgin, that he ascended into heaven, these are just myths that we hang our faith on and we get some warm feeling inside of the love of Christ in spirit. But there's no reality to them. This is not history. But again, I, I repeat that God's Word says that all of these events hang on historical verities, on truths, They are dependable. They are, in fact, necessary. Without the resurrection of Christ, what does Paul say? You take away the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you have no faith. You have nothing. And you have no forgiveness of sin. It demanded the coming of the pure Son of God and His death in our place, attested to by the resurrection, physical resurrection of Christ. This is how we are saved. So this is, these are not historical facts that have no, or these are not uh, myths that have no, no historical basis, but these are facts, and the Scripture demands that through and through. But the angel says, and here I'd like to draw our attention as we come before the Lord's table today. The angel says, He will come back in the same way you have seen Him go into heaven. This wasn't the first time God's people had to wait for Jesus to come. Before time began, Jesus was the Lamb ordained to die as a bloody sacrifice for human sin. But it took a long time for Jesus to come. Over centuries of time, God strung together various prophecies indicating the time Messiah would come, the place that He would come, the circumstances of His unusual appearance. Prophets were born. They prophesied concerning this Messiah. They died, and God's people, one generation after another, continued to wait. By the time the Old Testament was completed, what did the people know? What did God's people know? By the time the Old Testament was completed, they knew Jesus' name. That is, Emmanuel, God with us. They knew the very town in which he would be born, Bethlehem of Judea. They knew his lineage, this very narrow line in earth history uh, falling through King David. They knew that those at least willing to hear knew that his mission would be to suffer and to reign. Two ideas to his coming. He's coming, the prophets continued to announce. And I think God uniquely and for our benefit strung these prophets together over the centuries so that it was clear there was no capacity for them to collaborate together on these prophecies. 
There are hundreds and sometimes thousands of years between these prophets who say he'll be born in this city. And we can consider Daniel 9, which even says he'll be born at this very time. Or he will live and minister at this very time, Daniel 9. There's no way that these prophets could collaborate and bring all of these prophecies together. But all of this time, all of this waiting, that's essential for us to see the reality and the truth of it all. But think of God's people in the Old Testament. Year after year after year, they wait. Generation after generation, they wait. And we have sung their words here in past weeks. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Oh, come, come, this waiting for Messiah to come. Then at the perfect time, he came. In the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, God sent Jesus to earth. In the fullness of time, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. He has come, the angels outside of Bethlehem announced to the shepherds. Messiah, Jesus, the Savior of the world, prophesied over these many centuries by the prophets. He is here. Come and celebrate, they said to the shepherds, and rejoice the apostle John. We beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. What a marvelous visit it was. God in human flesh dwelling on earth with us. What a marvelous visit. But it was not a lengthy visit, was it? Just a blip on the line of human history. He was here, and just like that, he was gone. Depending on where we set the chronology, 33 or 36 years of age, and he was gone. And no one recognized him for the vast majority of that time, or the masses did not recognize him. Just a brief visit. And where does that leave us today? It leaves us right back in the same place, right back where the Old Testament saint was. We too find ourselves now waiting. Jesus is not here. We wait for him to come to earth the joy of the angels outside of Bethlehem, the joy of the shepherds in the fields, the joy of Simeon and Anna, to which we've, about which we've read here earlier. This was not only historical joy, this was prophetic joy. The joy surrounding Christ's birth is not only past joy, it is future joy. For the angelic prophecy assures us here in Acts 1 and verse 11, He will come back in the same way that you've seen Him go into heaven. This same Jesus, they say, not another like Him, this One who has been taken from you into heaven, He will come back. And so we wait. This waiting, this anticipation binds us to the Old Testament saint. Yet I think there's tremendous distinctions between our waiting and that of the Old Testament saint, and this difference puts us in a very favorable position and should really heighten our anticipation as we come to a time like this, remembering the Lord's death and this supper. Remember Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2, this great anticipation that they had had. But I think that as we wait for the second coming, there's a unique anticipation. Let me just mention as we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded that this is a retrospective meal. It points us back in time and calls us to remember. It is secondly an introspective meal. It calls us to examine ourselves and to examine our relationship with Christ. 
and it constitutes, in fact, I think, another communion with him in a unique way as we share this meal together as his people. It is retrospective. It looks back. It is introspective. It looks inward. And it is, thirdly, prospective. Eating this meal together constitutes a prophecy. As Paul explained to the Corinthians, by eating this meal together, we proclaim the Lord's death, what is the phrase, until He comes. We keep proclaiming the death of His first coming until He comes back. Keep eating. Keep waiting. Keep anticipating. Keep proclaiming. So we eat this meal remembering the first coming of Christ and with keen anticipation of the day when Jesus will come back in the same way that he left. Jesus said this himself. Notice Mark chapter 14 and verse 60. Again, there are many critics who would like to put the words of Christ, or the idea of Christ's ascension, his resurrection, his return in the mouth of the disciples only. But Mark chapter 14 and verse 60, we find Jesus even declaring this idea himself to his enemies at a time when it was very much in his favor not to make such a statement. But in Jesus' trial, we read Mark 14 and verse 60, Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Of course, that led to, his, uh, to the charge of blasphemy and to Christ's crucifixion. But he claimed this very idea that he would come on the clouds of heaven as the angels predict here and prophesy here in Acts chapter 1. So we wait for the prophesied coming of Jesus. And when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we sing with a far greater degree of understanding than did the Old Testament saint. As we eat this meal, proclaiming Christ's death until He comes, our anticipation of that coming should be charged with a far deeper sense of longing. I fear that it's probably charged with far less of a sense of longing. In so many ways, we're so glutted by our culture and our time and the confusion of soul that afflicts us in this world to see the things that really are not real and to miss the things that are. We proclaim His death until He comes. and We should long for His coming. Consider two reasons, at least, why our sense of anticipation for Christ's coming should be more intense than that of Simeon and Anna in his first coming. As you come before this meal today, as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, think on these two points with me, if you will. I think our longing should be greater, first of all, because we have tasted his glory. We have tasted his glory. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. 1 John 1, the Apostle John says this, in words of great enthusiasm and excitement, undoubtedly, he says, that which was from the beginning, 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, 
This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. We have touched this eternal word this one who was with the father and came from the father we have touched him we have seen him we have heard him says john and so unlike the old testament saint for us jesus is not only coming he's coming back we look for the return of the one we actually love and adore because we have come to know him no old testament saint could really say that in this same sense of the term. And, and you may say, well, we've not seen Jesus visibly, but we have in the sense that we know that he has been here. We understand the historical record of his life. We are looking to one who's not only coming, but coming back. We've tasted his glory. Jesus walked this earth and we saw him. If it were possible in this season of food glut, to find a food that was greater than anything you'd ever tasted before. And all you got was a taste, you'd really look forward to tasting it again, wouldn't you? We tasted Jesus. We've seen Him here. We've seen Him in operation. We've come to know Him and understand Him. It's that Jesus who's coming back. We saw his sinless life. We saw a self-sacrificing love as we've never seen it in the face of any other human being. We saw a man who loved so perfectly that he gave his life to save his enemies. He laid down his life that we might come to faith and salvation in him. We have seen his pristine holiness. We saw a man who never sinned. No enemy ever could charge Jesus with sin. None ever did. Now they did. None of it was ever proven to be true in any way, shape, or form. We saw pristine holiness. We saw a self-sacrificing love. We saw in Jesus a zeal for God. We saw a life that was wholly dedicated to God's work and to His will. And we saw a beauty of life that we have never seen before. We saw a man of compassion and a man of courage. We saw a man of wisdom, a man who could hold the masses spellbound by his teaching, but who humbly took children in his lap and blessed them. We've seen him. We've seen his glory. We've touched him, in a sense, by faith. And secondly, we've witnessed his sacrificial death. We've, we've tasted His glory. We've seen His sinless life, first of all. And we've witnessed His sacrificial death. It was the reign of Christ, not His suffering, that most attracted the attention of those who anticip anticipated His first coming. But His first coming was all about suffering. We saw that suffering. We have been humbled by it and drawn into its glorious light. And so it is... That we who really understand what it means that Jesus died understand what it means that he will reign. We understand that because he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. That God 
has exalted Him and given Him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. We can't understand that entirely without knowing of His suffering and His humiliation. We've tasted His glory. And so now His coming should be all the more glorious to us. The suffering is done. The reigning will come. And that leads to the second idea. First of all, we've already tasted His glory. Our anticipation should be all that much greater. But secondly, we have a clearer vision of His glorious mission this time. When these shepherds and Simeon and Anna and later the wise men welcomed Jesus at His first coming, they did not conceive that this was Christ's first of two comings. The prophets had long foretold that Christ would both suffer and reign, but it was never clear to the Old Testament saint how that was going to work or that it was going to take place in two events, two comings to earth. Separate visitations. His first mission was to suffer. That means from our perspective, there is only one more mission to fulfill. And we know what that mission is. Prophecies of Christ's first coming were shrouded in the mystery of these seemingly conflicting objectives to suffer and to reign. But we know that Christ will return to rule the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. This time, He will not be scorned. This time, He will not be rejected. This time, the government will be upon His shoulders. And His name will be called the Prince of Peace. And He will reign for a thousand years and then forever and ever as the kingdom is turned over to the Father. They did not understand this. But the Old Testament saints really were looking forward to a temporary visitation. When Jesus returns, He will stay and He will reign one thousand years. And so until then, we are called to proclaim His death until He comes. Why is that? Because it is in Messiah's death at His first coming, that we are empowered to participate in the victory He will win in His second coming. This morning we proclaim the suffering of His first coming as the basis for His second coming and its reign. In the fullness of time, Jesus will return. He will come again. And that day is for us, on this side of the cross, a day of hope and joy, and anticipation. Because we will not face the glorified Jesus as judge, but as Lord and Savior, those who have come to place their faith and hope in Him. The basis of that hope is not our good works. It's not because we were smarter than other people born into the right family. The reason for that is very simple. We've come to understand that we were enemies of God. It may not have been hand fish shaken in the face of God type of rebellion. But we were all born centered on self and choosing sin as a way of life. We have not earned our salvation, but Christ has laid down His life for us in sacrifice that we might be given that gift. He paid the penalty of your sin by dying on earth in your place a physical death. And so we gather around this commemorative table in order to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. And He will come again. The angels who announced His resurrection, they announced that resurrection before Christ appeared. 
to his disciples. And so they have announced to us here in Acts chapter 1 that this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back, and he will come back. And so, awaiting his second coming, we proclaim here today the death of his first coming in anticipation of that great return and his reign. We invite to this table those who have come to place saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for their sins. You are able to articulate how you know that Christ has saved you from sin. You've come to trust Him as your Lord and Savior. We invite to this table those who have identified with Jesus in baptism to give demonstration to their faith in a physical way and also to those who are walking in fellowship with Him. We invite you to this table. You do not need to participate with us, but we invite to those table those that are qualified to be part of this event and all of us together, I would encourage you to pray and to think ahead as we think on the Lord's return.